0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have a bunch of news including a new dinosaur from Dinosaur Isle. Ooh. Yeah. And we also have an interview with Tony and James Pinto, the father-son duo behind the documentary Why Dinosaurs. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Ostroraptor and I have an extended fun fact which is all about different ways that dinosaurs could get buried potentially in a bone bed that isn't just a mass flood, which is what we usually talk about.
1: Fun indeed.
0: I think so. (laughs) But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for keeping our podcast running. And this week, we have two new patrons to thank, and they are Naya and Graham. So thank you both for joining our community and rounding out the rest of our shout outs are Cameron, Ray, Scotty, the Tolbert family, Brendan Cavanaugh, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Laura Lorasaurus, and Kessler.
1: Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support and it really helps us keep this podcast going and we enjoy chatting with you on our Discord and Patreon. If you want to join, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino.
0: Jumping into the news, as usual, I like to start out with a new dinosaur when I can and really I have missed quite a few. I think I have about 10 or 15 in the backlog I need to catch up on.
1: Uh Uh-oh, before SVP.
0: Yeah, there's lots of smaller discoveries that didn't make huge news like this one, (laughs) but they're still really interesting and there's a lot you can learn from them. They're just not quite as exciting as, say, a beaked baby sauropod.
1: Well, that is hard to beat.
0: Yeah, with like the crazy horn thing going on. So
1: Even without the crazy horn.
0: (laughs) The fact that it's a sauropod at all is good enough for Sabrina. This one is not a sauropod, it's a theropod but it's still cool. It was published in Papers in Paleontology by Chris Barker and others. And as I alluded to at the beginning of the episode, it's from the Isle of Wight, also known as Dinosaur Isle. It's probably familiar to our UK listeners. It's just off the southern coast of the main island of Britain, although for some reason it's still considered part of the island of Britain, even though it's clearly a separate island. I don't know why it's not a channel island. There's probably some long history behind that. But in any event, (laughs) the dinosaur bones in question were found mostly, if not entirely, by visitors to the island at three separate occasions over a few months in 2019. And that's because, as you might know, Dinosaur Isle is a pretty big tourist destination. That's why it has this branding and everything. And fossils slowly erode out of the cliff on the edge of the island, just like they do along a lot of Britain. <laughs> it's one of the main ways to find fossils in the UK. So, eventually, after a few months, they got enough fossils that they decided to name a new dinosaur and they named it Vecterovenator inopinatus. And Vecterovenator comes from Vectus, which refers to the Isle of Wight. I guess they must have the same origin because V's and W's are kind of the same thing in Latin then "arrow" for air and venator for hunter. And fantastically for me, they wrote, quote, we imagine the name to be pronounced vectero venator.
1: <laughs> oh, that's nice.
0: It is wonderful. And I'm very thankful to everybody who wrote this paper for giving me a pronunciation guide. They didn't give a pronunciation guide for the species, but it's just a Latin word. It means unexpected. So it's easy enough. The primary unique detail about Vectero venator is that the vertebrae are highly pneumatized, which is why it has that air part in the aero venator, meaning that the bones are more hollow than Vectero venator's close relatives. The authors also say, quote, no theropod type specimens are known from the Aptian of Europe, end quote, and that makes this unexpected, I think. It's not too surprising since a lot of the type specimens are named from North America and then they were later discovered in Europe. So it's definitely not the first identifiable theropod from the Aptine of Europe, just the first one that they've been able to name because it wasn't named somewhere else first. Vecterovenator is a quote-unquote theropod, and that's really about as specific as they can be because it has features of Allosauroidea, Megalosauroidea, and Megaraptora, which is a kind of a controversial grouping. But in any case, it could be in at least three different places in the dinosaur theropod family tree, depending on which characters you think are the most important.
1: So it's a very theropod theropod.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Sort of all over the place. Part of the reason that it's so hard to nail down where it is, is the entire specimen consists of two back vertebrae, one neck vertebra, and one tail vertebra. So just four vertebrae is the entire holotype.
1: That's not a lot to go on.
0: It is not. And on top of that, none of the vertebrae are complete. One of the neck vertebrae looks pretty good. Like you can see a lot of details between the centrum and then also some of the little zygopophyses sticking off of it so you can get some detail, but none of them are in really pristine shape. It's also a little bit strange because like I said, all four of the vertebrae were discovered basically by different people. It was discovered by three groups. So I guess that's one vertebrae each for two of the groups and then one of the groups found two vertebrae. So they are pretty sure it came from the same individual because apparently they eroded out of a cliff around the same time over the span of a few months. So they're from the same general area and everything, but it's not like a typical scientific description where it's excavated and carefully described exactly where it was in the rock and how it was situated. So a couple of people have thrown some shade at this saying, how do you even know that these vertebrae are from the same animal? Maybe it looks like it's from all these different groups because they're not all vertebrae from the same individual, but they are pretty close in size. So And they were found in the same-ish place in a pretty brief period of time. So I think it's reasonable. I don't know if it's a great idea to name a holotype on it, but Whatever. We do what we can in paleontology. From a really rough extrapolation point, it looks like it was probably about four meters or 13 feet long, but it's super hard to guess at a size of an animal with just four vertebrae.
1: And none of them being complete.
0: Yeah. But if it is around that size, it makes it about mid-sized for a theropod, especially we're still in the early Cretaceous at this point, so we don't have all the super massive things, some of which came later. They didn't guess at an age for the individual. There weren't any long bones, which are what you usually want to use for lags. And that might be partly why. They did mention some sutures in the vertebrae, so I don't think it was super young, but they didn't say anything about it, so I don't want to postulate. The area in the Isle of Wight Where the fossils came out of is from a geological unit called the Lower Greensand Group, which is from the Aptian, and this fossil specifically is from the Late Aptian, which makes it about 115 million years old, plus or minus a couple million years. You know, there's always that plus or minus a couple million years (laughs) when we're talking about paleontology, unless there's something really good for dating it. That makes it some of the youngest, if not the youngest, non-avian theropod from Britain. And again, the Isle of Wight is considered part of the island, Great Britain, for a reason I don't understand. <laughs> In addition to Vectero Venator, the formation also has other theropods, sauropods, ankylosaurs, ornithopods, and lots of marine stuff because it was probably underwater for a lot of the Cretaceous.
1: But not long enough to keep out the dinosaurs.
0: Yeah, it's hard to keep out the dinosaurs. And from their best guess when they put these four vertebrae into a phylogenetic tree, which is difficult to do because you're missing almost all the characters you'd like to have to score something. It put it as a really close relative to T-Rex and therefore in Tyrannosauroidea, but it's obviously much smaller than T-Rex, about 50 million years earlier than T-Rex, and all the way across the world. So they're not that similar. They're just similar-ish from what we can tell from the vertebrae. For now. Yes. The authors also expressed that they didn't have a ton of confidence in this phylogeny because there's such a mix of features on the vertebrae. So there's definitely some convergence going on here. If it's a Tyrannosaur-like Allisauroid or it could be a Megalosauroid-like Tyrannosaur or half a dozen other things, it's hard to say what it was first and then what it evolved to look like. So the only way to settle this is going to be to find more fossils. So hopefully there's a more complete Vectero Venator somewhere on the Isle of Wight that we can find soon.
1: Yeah, that'd be cool. In other news, if you're listening to this episode the day it drops, then tomorrow, Thursday, September 17th, the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History will be hosting a free online lecture about how they renovated their fossil hall. Matthew Carano, the curator of Dinosauria, will be talking about the museum's approach and of the seven-year update. In other museum news, researchers at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum are revisiting old dig sites that Charles and Sternberg went to find more Triceratops fossils, specifically, and to learn more about what Triceratops ate and how it differed from Triceratops found in Montana. And they're looking at his old notes and clues to figure out Sternberg's dig sites from the early 1900s. And it's always interesting to see what scientists learn at sites that are over a hundred years old.
0: I always love this part of paleontology, the like going back and trying to find a historic and super important dig site, and then sometimes they do find more fossils. It reminds me a lot of Nizar Ibrahim trying to find that Spinosaurus material in like the desert and getting out there, and yeah, it's just. It's cool.
1: Oh, yeah. Lots of examples. And it just adds another layer of history to prehistory.
0: Mm-hmm. Tacking those GPS coordinates onto some rough field notes from 100 years ago, it must be really satisfying.
1: Mm-hmm. In McKinney, Texas, the Herd Natural Science Museum and Wildlife Sanctuary is having their annual Dinosaurs Live Life-Size Animatronic Dinosaurs exhibit from now until February 15th.
0: Everything is bigger in Texas, including their science museum names and exhibit names.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's the 15th year they've had this exhibit and there's 10 animatronic dinosaurs. They've got T-Rex, Dilophosaurus, Acrocanthosaurus, Allosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Diplodocus, Megalosaurus, Stegosaurus. Xenosaurus Utah raptor.
0: I hope that Brachiosaurus is life-size.
1: Ooh, me too. Well, it's an outdoor exhibit, so it might be. They have a 289-acre nature preserve, and so that makes it easy for if you're visiting, you can social distance, and masks are also required. In Learnington Spa, Warwickshire, England, a man bought his wife a dinosaur statue when she asked him to spruce up their garden.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's what she meant. <laughs>
1: It's a pretty good story. So Deborah Shaw said she asked him to make the garden, quote, tidy, maybe with a gnome. (laughs) And her husband, Adrian, spent 1,600 pounds on a 12-foot tall fiberglass T-Rex sculpture (laughs) that he named Dave. And he had to hire a crane for an additional 500 pounds to get it into position. So she got home late the day that Dave was delivered, and Adrian planned to surprise her with it. And he said to one newspaper, Metro, quote, I thought nothing could possibly look nicer in the garden than a three and a half meter replica of a rampaging T-Rex. So I bought one. I guess that it is most people's dream to own a three and a half meter replica of a rampaging T-Rex, but they don't have the space or resources to do this. I've been very fortunate to be able to realize the dream, end quote. <laughs> That was too good not to quote. So, apparently, Deborah does love dinosaurs and is a fan of Jurassic Park and David Attenborough. So, it seemed like a win. But what happened was after Dave was delivered, it was the middle of the night or early the next morning. So, it was still dark. And Deborah took their dog out so the dog could pee and then screamed because she saw the T Rex illuminated by security lights and wasn't expecting it to be there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was the first time she saw it was in the middle of the night
1: yeah because she got home late when it was dark so she didn't see it and that's why he was going to surprise her the next day oh, no. so adrian said he ran downstairs but even after the initial shock she kept screaming and he said quote i've fallen in love with dave though and he's not going anywhere i'm sure deborah will understand and grow to love him just as much as i do
0: <laughs> that is a wonderful story <laughs> so what i'm hearing is if i get a cool dinosaur sculpture and put it in our yard You'll probably like it.
1: Depends on the sculpture.
0: A rampaging T-Rex?
1: I don't want to be shocked in the middle of the night about it.
0: I'll show you in the daytime.
1: Mm, We could talk more about this later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When we're not recorded. (laughs) Spoiler alert. We're going to talk a little bit about Jurassic World Dominion. So if you don't want to get spoiled, skip ahead like a minute or so.
1: So last we got some fun speculation on Jurassic World Dominion, you know, Jurassic World 3. And how the movie's going to explain the new dinosaurs like Pyroraptor, And that's because InGen's labs were destroyed and most of the owners and operators were dead by the end of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So apparently Cameron Thor will be in the film and he's the guy who played Lewis Dodgson in Jurassic Park. If you remember that scene where Nedry's screaming, we've got Dodgson here.
0: (laughs) Oh, it was Dodgson? I always thought it was Dotson.
1: (laughs) Me too. But I guess that's just Nedry's accent. I don't know.
0: Yeah. And Dodgson didn't cheap out on him, so he bought him all those desserts. That was the only thing I remember Dodgson doing.
1: Yeah, he wasn't really in it. (laughs) But he works for Biosyn, InGen's competitor. And so in Jurassic World Dominion, maybe we'll see Biosyn trying to steal genetic material from the InGen dinosaurs. That's part of the plot of the novel, but it wasn't part of the movie The Lost World.
0: Wow, they're still pulling stuff out of those early two books.
1: Yeah, there's a lot (laughs) going on in those books. Yeah. So if Biosyn gets the dino DNA, then they could make all kinds of dinosaurs, even a soldier dinosaur, like was alluded in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom.
0: Yeah. Hopefully they have feathers. That's all I'm hoping for. Yeah. I, have, I have a low bar. I just want feathers on one dinosaur and I'll be happy.
1: I think Pyroraptor might be your dinosaur. Then. I
0: really hope so.
1: But yeah, this is all speculation, so we have no idea. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public and they're gonna be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash DinoDig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash DinoDig, D I N O D I G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022.
0: Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Tony and James Pinto, but... In a rare treat, if you like videos, we have a video version of this interview on our YouTube channel. So if you go to youtube.com, search for I Know Dino and Why Dinosaurs, W-H-Y Dinosaurs, you'll find our interview and you can watch the video version of this talking to them.
1: Yeah. And a big thanks to Tony and James.
0: Yes, they did a fantastic job on making the video. They've got some serious video skills that we can only aspire to. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) We're joined this week by Tony and James Pinto, the father and son team who are currently working on the feature length documentary, Why Dinosaurs, which is a subject near and dear to our hearts, all about dinosaur enthusiasts and experts. Thank you both for coming on our show today.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us.
0: So you two started this project when James was in high school, graduating this year. Congratulations. And Tony, you own and operate a video production company. Is this a last hurrah before James goes off to college?
3: I'd say that's probably for me the best way to put it. Yeah, I, I was seeing the, the clock tick down and, you know, we'd, we've spent some quality time together, but the end is near. And his older brother had already left the house and it's like, okay, <laughs> life's <laughs> about to change.
2: I mean, I don't think we had that grand of intentions in mind when we started. Anyway, mm-hmm. it was you know, this is like I'm 15 or something, and and he's
3: 32.
2: <laughs> yeah, 29. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, we just decided, hey, wouldn't it be fun to to make like you know, a little sort of 20 minute ride. I was like my dream was like forty minutes of <laughs> you know, just a thing on the history of, of paleontology and, and all the different books and movies over the years, sort of like a timeline. From there, I think it was just like sort of surprising how many people even wanted to be a part of it. And then, you know, now it's gotten to this point where we we have the means, really, we just need to sort of get the editing stuff all together. But we have the means footage wise to produce like a feature length documentary just about
3: and we do have a, a plan i mean this is it's too long you know we've kind of charted it out it's like four hours and some people <laughs> have said oh you should do a series because everything nowadays is a series but there's something kind of elegant we feel about it being just just a film and being you know around 90 minutes and it, it really forces you to distill all this stuff down and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just give the best bits because we know dinosaur nerds would watch all four hours you know (laughs) i mean we have 25 hours of usable footage which we're gonna publish for people to consume but you know we want to get it out to you know a a bigger audience you know (laughs) kids who are into dinosaurs and even people who aren't necessarily, they don't think they're into dinosaurs, but maybe there's like this little, you know, long lost love or something. Hmm. And we want to just nurture that out again.
0: Nice.
1: How did you, when you were first starting out, like how did you first get the word out and start getting your first few interviews?
2: There was a point in like eighth grade in in middle school where I wanted to do uh, a science fair project involving something in paleontology. And that was about as far as I'd gotten thought wise. But it was relatively hard to do because most science fair projects revolve around a sort of scientific method experiment, quote unquote, whereas a lot of paleontology is sort of gathering and assessing data. Like experiments happen from time to time, but most of it is just, here is this table that we have assembled of all of the numbers. And from here, we're going to speculate upon what implication this has, you know, for uh for, for whatever topic it is. And so I ended up finding out about this project in a, in a book that I had been reading, um, where they took some Spinosaur teeth and evaluated the geochemical ratios of, of oxygen isotopes in them. And I was like, that seems like an interesting idea. You know, I want to try that. And so I ended up just like Googling my way through all of these chemical names and, and Devices and things that they use, and just trying to get any script of of idea, like how how do I do this? You know, what is uh, temperature ratio mass spectrometry? You know, or how they how they put it. And so, I eventually just started like finding these websites where they were like, "Oh, okay, this school has a mass spectrometer in their lab." And I was like, "Okay, that's the thing I want. Let me just email them." And this went for. I think like five or so schools just in California, I was just trying to see, you know, what, who would, who would respond and what, and people are responsive with this. That's what's always, you know, from the beginning surprised me is just that all of these professors and all these schools and, you know, it wasn't a a yes, but it was, (laughs) it was something. (laughs) And just that, you know, in itself is really sort of, it was inspiring to me at least that people were willing to, to reach out and I eventually found some some very nice geochemists over at, at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who said, Yeah, we'll do it. Um, you know, bring the stuff up and, and we'll we'll do it and send it back to you. And I was like, that's cool, but I kinda wanna like go through the process. So I mean, Dad, <laughs> we go up to Santa Cruz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we went up there and we did the chemicals and, and ironically. While I was learning about it, I think the more I learned about it, the more almost, not disappointing, but just more complicated it got in terms of just that, like, that is a relatively new science. Um, And the climatology stuff being done with it is amazing. Like, they were were doing some work on plankton that were being used to trace an 8-million-year-old El Nino event that was, you know, something they could reference to future weather events that might happen to see like what you know what the pathway is and in that sort of field where you have like a mountain of data and stuff like that you can get a bit of this this weather trend stuff going but when it comes to trying to figure out what individual organisms are doing it's really messy because like sediments change things the uh the the temperature of the water changes things heavily there's an equation to like account for that but it only it only goes on a base of having known what the temperature was a hundred million years ago, you know, which is comes with a, a bit of speculation. So the results that I actually got from the project were by no means you know clean, but it was interesting to see it was essentially just that it was uh, very variable in in the amount of like salt in the water, the salinity of the water, uh, wasn't amount of salt even, it was just proximity to the ocean, like amount of times it had been picked up and rained. Um, Yeah, that's cool.
1: Yeah, didn't even think about that.
2: But just getting into that process showed me sort of how open to to projects these people are and, and sort of how approachable they are. So to go all the way back and answer the original question, it was just cold emails, you know, to people I saw in documentaries and stuff. And it was just, hey, I'm 15 at that point and, and I'm making a documentary and would do you want to be part of it? You have time or something? We, <laughs> we could go there. Um, we'll just interview you and, you know, that'd be cool. And then eventually what started happening was, was you know, we, we didn't really have the means to just fly out to all of these places, um, but he has all of these travel gigs. And so we would go, you know, um, I had started helping him out, sort of schlepping gear um, and, and holding cameras and that sort of thing. And uh, it would be like, oh, okay, let's go to Arizona. And I'd be like, oh, well, there's a natural history museum in Arizona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, as a dad, seeing
3: what what started sort of at 13 with this science fair project. And Which he won, going, right? He did. But yeah, seeing this young kid with an understanding and a passion for that. Like, of course, as a parent, you know, you're going to go for that, you know, whether that's, you know, karate or soccer or dance or whatever it is, you know, he's into dinosaurs. So it's like, all right, let's do
2: it. That's great.
1: <laughs> yeah. And James, you've also worked at, was it La Brea Tar Pits and the Natural History mm-hmm. Museum of LA?
2: Uh, well, I've worked at La Brea Tar Pits. I almost got to get in with LA's Natural History Museum, but. A combination of age restrictions and bad timing with a certain pandemic mm. um, sort of nipped that as it was about to happen. But in the case of La Brea, I've been there almost, it was it was getting close to two years. It was probably about a, a year and a half. And the first bit of that was spent uh, sort of docenting, acting as one of those like special cart people, you mm-hmm. know, where you walk up and they have a thing and they show you. And that's just interesting in the level of getting to see how people engage with any of this stuff, uh, especially since it's not like it's not a dinosaur. So there's that one extra level of like, okay, you know, I'm here and this is a museum with skeletons in it, but they aren't dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And with La Brea, even it's like it's the classic Ice Age fauna, but it isn't the classic Ice Age world. You -hmm. know, Um, it's it's sort of like essentially a a a montana pasture or something or like a forest you know where it's it's colder a bit but like there's no giant glaciers or anything like that and and even even in the winter it's like there wasn't probably a a whole bunch of snow which is sort of ironic just because there wasn't as much water since a lot of it was in the glaciers in canada so the the environment there is 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 pretty strange and and sort of getting people through that journey of like oh okay well what is this it's it's a sloth but it's eight feet tall but it's a gorilla but it's a bear but it's you know an herbivore but it's not as slow as a sloth but it's still pretty slow but it's some you know it's, there's just it's like it's a dinosaur it, it's a yeah. dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, move, move along. It's a dinosaur. But, but uh, at that point from there, I eventually got a, uh, a spot in the, in the lab, in the prep lab that they have. They call it the fishbowl because mm-hmm. the whole thing is this like semicircle of glass and everyone looks in and bonk, 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 mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like, uh, like you're the exhibit. There, were, there was uh, a non-zero number of people who, ha- who asked, um, are the people in the lab animatronic? Wow.. <laughs> that. that has been a question. Wow.. Well, um, but uh, yeah, I went through there and got to learn their process, which is very unconventional in, in paleontology as well, because you know, you're working through asphalt, which is not a, a common sediment. And then beyond that, you know, within that asphalt, you're working through these non-permineralized fossils that are just basically dark bones. Like, they're Mm. just sort of dark, asphalt-filled bones. Beetles come out of that place all the time too, and and some of them even retain a bit of their color. Like, you'll see these green beetles, and they'll still have just a little bit of that iridescence. And you're like, whoa. Wow. Do you ever get birds? We do get birds. We get some very, very finely preserved birds, which is um, very cool to see. I worked on a, the bone's called a tarsometatarsus once, that was a little thinner than a toothpick. Um, and about an inch long or so and so you won't just the most common thing by far is raptors because they're easiest to preserve and there's a a weird sort of edge case in the form of owls which will because it's at night and because they are sort of these pounce on hunters like essentially they'll just slam themselves into the tar pits (laughs) um, you know trying trying to get a, a stuck mouse or something and then they'll just go in right along with them so, the most, one of the most common birds we find is are owls. Um, the big birds that you find there are the teratorns, these just giant, it's almost like a condor-eagle hybrid, because it has a lot of similarities to condors, but there was recently a study that was sort of showing it was similar in appearance, but it didn't have that scavenging capability, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been as good of a scavenger based on its beak and stuff, so it probably would have been sort of stalking around and, and catching smaller prey and, and swallowing a hole, mm. mm-hmm. which is weird to imagine for a bird that has like a almost a 12-foot wingspan. Yeah. <laughs> you find, I mean, all sorts of birds. You find passerine birds, little sparrows and things. And, Did you
0: ever and, uh, tell people when they're like, are there any dinosaurs? You'd be like, yes, look over here. We have." <laughs> that was know. a it's running dinosaurs gag. Dinosaurs.
2: Because there's a section where you can see all of the birds, and you're like, ah, here we are, my favorite dinosaur, the La Brea turkey vulture, majestic be- beast of the place to see. Probably
3: raise some eyebrows when you say the word raptor, right?
2: Well, to a degree, but I mean, it's, it's enough sort of in the, the lexicon, I think, you know, you right. see a, a raptor, a bird of prey.
0: By the time La Brea was forming, were there still the terror birds? In air quotes, or had those already been wiped out by all the North American stuff?
2: That was post uh, the name for it's the Great the Great American Interchange, and that happened around three million, somewhere between and, five and and three million years ago. So yes, the cats had already won, and <laughs> that yeah that fight had been fought. It's it's a fascinating place. I mean, mm-hmm.
1: you know. So once you started working at Labrea Tar Pits, is that you decided like all right. Now it's time for some non-avian dinosaurs, and you started going fossil hunting in other states.
2: It's funny because some of that was even before. When I was like summer of like when I was 14, I had just gotten this like sudden desire. I was like, I want to go and, you know, look for something, dig for something. <laughs> and so um I just started Googling around and showed my dad a couple of these websites. So you so went together? Kept- we went together the it's first year. Fourteen, I'm gonna send yeah. him off to <laughs> South Dakota by himself. You know, that's like, true. Yeah. That's
1: true. Good point. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and so most of of what I did for the first sort of couple of years there was really more of just prospecting. You know, they would they would go to these ranch areas and send everybody off, and and you'd go and look for. For little bits. And then when they found something big or, you know, something that's sort of like important, they would get it excavated and then they would donate it usually to the uh, the field museum up in mm-hmm. Chicago. Because um, it's just a little private organization, you know, that goes and, and send people out. But whenever they had something that was that was sort of of value, because they came from a science background, it's sort of like this understanding of like, oh, okay, you know, that that should go somewhere where it can be studied and, and we need to get all the data of it and, and all that.
1: So did you continue going out every summer, fossil hunting?
2: Yeah, and I actually just started doing this. uh, We we had the chance to go over to a place called the Wyoming Dinosaur Center for a couple days. They have a couple of quarries established of Morrison formation material. So, you know, Jurassic stuff, Allosaurus, Diplodocus, Camarasaurus, you know, some of those sort of usual favorites. And um, you get to go out there and just sort of pick a direction in this hill it's usually most, most of the beds they have are some, you know, 20 feet by 20 feet. They have one that's a fair bit bigger, but, you know, you can sit and, and, and dig out at some piece of a, of a sauropod or something like that. And then after that, you can take it and they have this little museum that's like right at the base of the hill. They have a prep lab in there and you can just, you know, go right to the next stage of like, okay... Well, here's, here's some fossils that people have been finding. Let's prepare them and then we can put them in, in the collections hall. And nice. so it's really a nice sort of like bite-sized version of the complete experience. Like you can go there for a day, you can go there for a week, you can go there. You know, there's a couple of interns that are there for like the summer. And so however much you sort of want to dive into that side of it, you can. And it does, you know, give that really interesting sort of feeling of like, getting to work in that space. It's, it's the ultimate trial run for <laughs> do you want to be a paleontologist? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I will say, having been out in the field, like, middle like, of nowhere, Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota, like, there's, there's some brutal conditions during <laughs> the summer between the bugs and the the heat and all that stuff. Wyoming yeah. Dinosaur Center, I sort of jokingly call it, like, the glamping <laughs> of field work because they've got a shade they've got a port potty you know on a lot of the dig sites it's around the corner from the air-conditioned lab and so I thought you know, like man I wish I'd found that you know when you were 14 <laughs> like that's that's a lot easier yeah it's yeah. a little
2: more hard hardcore to go out into just the open lands yeah but it's right. cool to
3: have that experience and you know we were talking to other paleontologists and future paleontologists and not everybody's a huge fan of doing the field work Mm -hmm. because some of them say oh there's there's plenty of stuff already we could just work that or they just they're not really that outdoorsy but you know it's rough in the field and you know yeah it really
2: is i mean going through that sort of just physical experience is like it's it's definitely something to separate out because i i think you know the stuff that really does sort of get me like I want to do this forever is the preparing stuff and the hmm. researching stuff and just talking about it and getting all fired up about it you know field work is is fun but it's something where it's it's really does like physically just take it out of you
0: so now that you've done both sides of it you prefer the preparation a little bit to the field work
2: in most cases I mean there's something special about just going and seeing something that's like you are person number one yeah. mm-hmm. to have ever seen this thing. And like, yeah. no no disclaimer, no, oh, well, technically, you know, it's like, that is it. You went out into the middle of nowhere <laughs> and picked up this like piece of a gigantic creature from, uh, you know, 70 million years ago. Yeah. yeah.
3: Um,
2: they put me,
3: uh, usually when I would go out uh, in the summers with him, I'd be filming or I'd be back at the hotel working. I didn't do any of the the digging. And so at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center, they were like, well, here, why don't you try it? And so I'm just chipping away at some rocks and finding some dark stuff. I have no idea what I'm really looking for. (laughs) And it's like plant matter, but what's this, James? Nothing, you know? And then all of a sudden I'm like, guys, this this looks kind of interesting, like a bigger branch. And they're like, okay, you know? And and I'm like, oh, it's moving a little. Maybe you should stabilize it. And they're like, okay. And then I take out this chunk and I'm like, are those serrations? And both James and, and Mags, this intern, look and go, that's an allosaurus tooth. That's a big one too. And I was like,
2: oh, cool. And like beginner's luck, I guess. Well, ironically, I don't even know if you were the first one to see the serrations. Maybe not. It's, it might have been like, hey, can you look at this? And it was yeah. like, whoa, whoa. Because right. the, the, the best tip we had was that it was like, dark and shiny, which is a usual sort of, in that formation, at least, it's an indicator of, of enamel. So um, then
3: they took that immediately into the lab and cleaned it up. And by the end of the day, we're looking at, you know, a tooth in pretty good shape, you know, good enough to have all the scientific data that they would want, you know, nice. for yeah. for that tooth. And they have 200 others, but, you know, even that is part of, you know, a bigger data set. So mm-hmm. there's really a lot of fun.
2: Yeah.
1: So going back to the documentary, what are some of the most memorable moments so far while making this?
2: Well, we've had quite a few. Yeah. I mean, almost the harder part is just picking some. Um,
1: (laughs) The
3: Curry story is a
1: pretty good one. The
2: Curry story is pretty fun. Um, (laughs) So we had been doing some interviews in Alberta and we went to the Tyrol, and, you know, just had a great time with all the people there. And and after that, it was like, okay, well, now we're going to go up to the University of Alberta and interview Phil Curry who is mm. who's teaching there right now. And so it was like okay, let's go up and then we end up going in this building on like the fourth floor or something and meet him in in what is essentially his office. And he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, this is uh this is a cool area, but I think the uh, most of the the fossils and things you'd actually want to see are on the first floor cuz if we put them on the fourth floor and there was an earthquake, then the whole building would sort of sandwich the lower (laughs) floors that's why i made the turtle with only one floor (laughs) i was was like yeah that's a good point
3: um they got a lot of land out there
2: too yeah Yeah. a lot of horizontal space over in Drumheller. so he was like why don't you come down to the basement area and then we can you know position it in front of this this skull we're working on and so we go our way down there it's this like cement you know basement and through this hallway into this tiny room with like a full-on, really nice condition, Storacosaurus skull mm. yeah, that cool. was like, it was in the jacket, but it was like finished being prepped. So, you know, it, was, it wasn't was even really a museum display. It was just, it was like it, you know, and you could see the little horns on the sides and the horn poking up. And, wow. And um, just to like even be in that with, with him and just the whole experience. It was just like, oh. Yeah. Um, but we started up this this interview and it was to the point where I was in the room with him. But the room was so tiny that it was me and the cameras and then... The cameras were in the doorway and I'm outside the room. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't in the room at all. Monitoring the cameras. So it was a little cramped. We started going through it and we were having a really good time. And, and I think when you have a really good time, you just, you know want to keep talking about stuff. So we're talking about this and he's telling this story. And this was like hour into the interview or so, maybe hour and 15. And I'm standing like this, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is a cool story. And then just like out of nowhere, I start <laughs> getting tunnel vision. Oh, and no. I'm just like, uh-oh. And, and then I like began to faint. So I'm falling over the side of like a drawer in the back. And he just sort of slumped. Yeah, over. slumped and over was, back into that. And I was watching
3: the monitor. I can't even see James. I just see Curry's face go, Oh, oh, <laughs> are, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> and then James
2: comes too and he's a little bit out of it. Yeah. And uh, so I, we ended up switching places. And I was, I was there and sort of still asking questions, but I was just in a chair taking, <laughs> taking a little break, listening to the interesting story. <laughs> to me,
3: that was the most memorable. And I um, hope that, you know, that to embarrass James, but no, it's just the I mean, funniest yeah. story. <laughs> it's just, <laughs>
2: and I mean, it was nice too because everyone was pretty nice about it. And we all, yeah. you know, sort well, of continued the shoot. And, and Curry
3: will always remember you. Oh, you're the kid that fainted in the interview.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you're starstruck. It, yeah, yeah. I'm glad it wasn't anything serious.
2: No fossils were harmed, no, the making of this production.
1: <laughs> that's funny. That's your priority. No dinosaurs <laughs> or humans yeah. were harmed. Yeah. Can you give us a little taste of the story you're working on, or are you keeping that under wraps?
2: I mean, I think to a degree we can at least, there's sort of topics and things that we want to have You know, it be a, a part of. So without going into it a whole lot, it's it's sort of, you know. It's there's, about
3: these podcasters, their husband <laughs> and wife.
2: Yeah, we open on two podcasters in the greatest podcast. That's the first 70 that,
1: minutes. That makes and sense, And then there's yeah.
2: sort of this
3: montage of James <laughs> fainting and meeting some celebrity paleontologist. A picture uh, of Jeff Goldblum.
2: Yeah, yeah. Right. Us, us talking to, to star, a, a car Hollywood Star
3: and, and credits,
2: that's it. No, go ahead. Give him the true synopsis in the broadest of scopes um we we really want to go through sort of the the opening idea of like okay well here is here's me i'm sort of an example of one of these people there are so many who are like interested in dinosaurs like committally almost you know it's just it's been a really long time and you can see it doing it for a very long time afterwards and the question is just like okay well why is it that I even find this interesting?
1: Mm-hmm. Why
2: does anyone find this interesting? And then beyond that, like, even, even in the sense, you know, there's one thing to sort of be on the sidelines and, and, and be invested, but, like, why do people devote their lives to this sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know? And really, the interesting part that doesn't have quite as clean of an answer, you know, beyond just sort of history, is that dinosaurs, compared to every other branch or era of prehistoric life have just this like weird sort of celebrity status. Like we've been talking about it with so many people. If you want to do something about Earth history, try and find a way to cram in the word dinosaur. You'll get more interest. So to get into into why that is and, and why it's been that way over the last 150 years or so is mm-hmm. really what a lot of the of the beginning of it is is about so mm-hmm. there's sort of this exploration of like really early paleontology kind of the classic stuff from from england and and from the beginnings of of in america and and then all over the world really as people start going more places and leading into that there's all these sort of pop culture versions of dinosaurs over the years we've been cataloging you know king kong and and uh, even just paintings and stuff, but all these old movies, Harryhausen made. And, and as you're leading up, you're getting through this point where there's like slumps and reignition and interest in dinosaurs. And uh, eventually through the 70s, you know, um, I'm assuming you guys are familiar with the, the dinosaur renaissance mm-hmm. um, sort of era. And then as you get to the 70s, 80s, like research is ramping up. And then there's just this culmination with Jurassic Park and we've really found that that's almost this, like, divider in the timeline of, like, you know, pre, pre-JP, <laughs> pre yeah, and then JP. <laughs> yes. Before Jurassic Park era and Jurassic Park era, because yeah. Yeah. you know, without fail, really, when we've talked about sort of, oh, well, why do you think dinosaurs are popular with the people? It's like, well, now it's because of... They're, they were in, you know, one of the highest grossing movie franchises of all time. <laughs> yep. And beyond that, there's just, you know, this explosion of just like cultural relevance. So we, we go through a little bit of just like the Jurassic Park. It's almost like a mini Jurassic Park fan film, you know, getting to, <laughs> to, to talk to some of these people. Even though, ironically, Jurassic Park, like, wasn't why I got into dinosaurs, you know like I, re- I like it as a movie and I watched it I think when I was like 12 or so. but I mean a lot of, it, of what what sold it for me was books and, and documentaries and stuff that came out mm. sort of in my time, mm-hmm. you know being being a 2000s kid. but just to see sort of it's like one of the biggest cultural milestones in like all of paleontology really. Oh, yeah. And so seeing the the transformation that happens in how people perceive dinosaurs and how people perceive paleontologists, you know, like before and after that movie is crazy. So yeah. beyond that, there's some talk about sort of all the different types of dinosaur enthusiasts who did get into it in different ways. You got artists, you have scientists, you have collectors, you know, of even just like toys and stuff like that
3: tattoos you have world's strongest man you know with like (laughs) t-rex tattoos oh really his whole his whole image oh yeah Yeah. there's there's a lot of
2: interesting things yeah um and and even just these little stories too of of you know amateurs and just Mm -hmm. like people who are really into dinosaurs going out and and finding something and making a scientific difference you know there's a couple examples that we have of, of people we've met and they tell us, you know, these stories about like, well, I just sort of wanted to be a part of it and I thought it was cool. <laughs> so I started walking around my ranch or whatever it is and, and I found a dinosaur and now there's a new dinosaur, you know, that's been introduced <laughs> and into it's in the world. It's named after me. And it's named after me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's the dream. Um, yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> that's so that's all the spoilers you're gonna get. Yeah, <laughs> I'm putting the kibosh right there. Um,
1: we appreciate that. Yeah.
3: So do you have a
1: release date yet?
3: I've got a hard date of end of this year. So December mm-hmm. 31st, 2020. Holiday and, movie. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> we don't know what that means in terms of distribution or anything. because yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, our dream was to you know premiered at like the natural history museum or at the tar pits in one of their theaters we wanted to do a film festival but those are so bizarre now and Mm -hmm. kind of virtual and
2: so yeah right now we're focused on let's just make a good movie and then try and cram it onto a streaming service (laughs) yeah hey we don't have a plan for it but that would be something we would really want to do is you know get it get it so that further so there's an easy way for people to to look at it yeah yeah and to inspire people you know especially
3: young people and we're hoping that the breadth of people that we've interviewed you know makes it more approachable for everybody Mm -hmm. you know it's not just older white male paleontologists you know it kind of started that way and Mm -hmm. we got good feedback from the community and and we just learned there's there's people from all walks of life that are interested in dinosaurs in some way shape or form
2: and even just get into sort of newer faces you know because a lot of what we have been thinking about and what I you know think about is, is just sort of these these people who are now like paleo celebrities but they've just been in it for a really long time you know mm-hmm. 30 40 years or something it's like that is a lot of, of what that legacy is going to be you know for the future. Um, but there's all these people who haven't really made their legacy yet. And so getting to see just like that sort of raw, you know, hungry student energy of like, (laughs) I'm going to do it. And I, you know, sort of found my way into it and to see sort of these people, it's like, this is going to be the next generation of like the legendary paleontologists. Mm -hmm. Um, Just getting to meet all the people has been really quite the experience in itself, you know, (laughs) beyond, beyond filming, you just, you know, having a chance to be, Hey, you know, and talk talk for a bit and just nerd out for a bit.
0: So you've been really active on social media and getting the word out about your show with trailers and everything. Where's the best place for people to go to keep up with what you
1: guys are up to and see when the
0: movie comes out?
3: WhyDinosaurs.com is the best place to start.
1: Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks
3: for having us.
0: Thanks again, Tony and James, for it letting us interview you. We're excited to watch Why Dinosaurs when it comes out. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
3: Go to your happy place for a
1: happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Ostroraptor, which was a request from Paleo Mike VR, Patreon, and Discord. So thanks. Ostroraptor was an unanlaguin dromaeosaurid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Argentina, found in the Allen Formation in Rio Negro. It's one of the largest known dromaeosaurids. It's almost as big as Utah Raptor. Ooh! Yeah, it's estimated to be about sixteen feet or five meters long. Though Gregory Paul later estimated it to be twenty feet or six meters long and weigh six hundred and sixty pounds or three hundred kilograms.
0: Yeah, it's pretty much Utah Raptor size.
1: Mm-hmm. So Ostroraptor was a bipedal carnivore, and it had this low, elongated skull, which may have made it have a weaker bite force. It had conical, non-serrated teeth with no denticles. Which Novas and others who named Ostroraptor compared to Spinosaurid teeth. Huh. And it had short arms for a Dromaeosaurid. Usually, Dromaeosaurids have long arms.
0: That is quite a bit different than Utah Raptor. It's got short arms and non serrated conical teeth.
1: Yes. So, its humerus was less than half the length of the femur, it was about 46%. And that's compared to 76% in Deinonychus, another Dromaeosaurid. Because of its short arms, Ostroraptor is being compared to T. rex, but it's actually not closely related. As an Unenlogyene, Ostroraptor may have been a good runner and better at pursuing prey than other dromaeosaurids. It was gracile, and it could run fast for long periods of time, and it had these relatively thin, long metatarsals, so all these things mean that it could chase after small, fast animals. Scientists have made models for a relative another dromaeosaur, butryraptor, and found that butryraptor could travel long distances to chase after prey and then used its long forelimbs and sickle claw to injure or kill the prey and then probably swallowed its food whole with its non serrated teeth, and it could have used its teeth to hold the prey. So a similar model has been proposed for ostroraptor, though it would not have held its prey because its arms were too short, and its teeth were conical and possibly stronger, so it could have used its teeth when hunting.
0: So maybe it relied more on its head than its arms, and that's another little comparison to T-Rex?
1: Oh, maybe, yeah. So the type species is Ostroraptor cabazae. It was found in 2002 by a team and then described and named in 2008 by Fernando, Emilio Novas and others. They found a partial skeleton with a lot of the skull. The holotype includes parts of the skull, lower jaw, vertebrae, ribs, humerus, and parts of the legs. The genus name means southern thief. The species name is in honor of Alberto Cabaza, who founded the Museo Municipal de la Marque, where the fossil was partially studied. Phil Curry and Ariana Paulina Carvajal referred a second specimen to Ostroraptor in 2012 that had been found in 2008. It was an adult partial skeleton with a skull a little smaller than the holotype and it includes things that were missing in the holotype, like the lower arm and hand and foot. Ostroraptor is one of the earliest known Gondwanan and and that helps show that large dromaeosaurids were some of the large predators alongside abelosaurids. Other animals that lived around the same time and place include titanosaurs, such as saltosaurus, birds such as limonavis, and hadrosaurids, such as bonapartosaurus. You can see Ostroraptor at the Bernardino Rivadavia Natural History Museum in Buenos Aires, Argentina.
0: And our fun Eryctodromeus burrow of the day is that many bone beds are caused by floods or river deposits, but it's possible that some dinosaur bone beds were formed from a mass poisoning. Oh, no. Yeah. So this is one of the theories behind the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry with the weirdly high number of allosaurs. So there are multiple things that could have killed these allosaurs. And one of the theories is that maybe there was a poisoned or diseased animal carcass that attracted an allosaur looking for an easy meal, which was then killed by the same poison or disease that had killed the animal that's trying to scavenge. And then that Allosaurus's body contributed as more meat to attract another allosaur, which also died, which attracted another allosaur, and on and on and on and on until you got a whole bunch of allosaurs dead in one place, and it looks like a super weird scene.
1: A morbid scene.
0: Yes. But what I want to talk about for my Eryctodromias burrow is that there's a couple ways that lakes can cause mass poisonings. So one of them is called a limnic eruption. And this is a really crazy event and the thing that really got me started down this rabbit hole. So a limnic eruption isn't like an eruption of a volcano that you're used to, where it's an explosion of hot gases and magma and lava and like pyroclastic flows and all that kind of stuff. It's just a huge off-gassing of carbon dioxide from a lake. And It's literally the same thing that happens when you open a can of soda and it starts bubbling. That's carbon dioxide, which was dissolved in the soda when you opened the can, coming off as a gas. It works in soda really well because CO2 dissolves in cold water better than it does in warm water. So if you've ever noticed, if you open a can of soda at room temperature, it fizzes a lot more than it does if you chill it beforehand because the vapor pressure is different. So when it's warm it comes shooting out a little bit more and then the pressure inside the can also helps to keep it inside the liquid. So one specific example of a limnic eruption happened at a place called Lake Neos in Cameroon. The geology of Lake Neos is really unique. It's hundreds of feet deep which is pretty deep for a lake and it's right next to a volcano. The important thing about this volcano is that there are some cracks or fissures in the volcano which slowly leak carbon dioxide into the lake and at the bottom of the lake, which is also important because the water at the bottom of the lake is cold and under a lot of pressure since it's deep because water just gets pressurized by more water on top of it when it's at the bottom of a lake, for example. And just like a can of soda, which is under pressure and cold, it can absorb lots of carbon dioxide in this setting. So now you have this lake, where at the bottom, there's this cold water under a lot of pressure. It's absorbed a lot of carbon dioxide. And at Lake Neos, unlike most lakes, there are separate layers in the lake that don't intermix. So there's this cold bottom layer, and it doesn't mix with the higher layers.
1: Must look a little weird.
0: Well, you I mean, you probably wouldn't see it because it's like 600 feet deep. Mm. But yeah, it might cause it to look, it's probably pretty still, I would guess. There's not a lot of convection going on. Or if there is it's confined to separate layers so as a result this carbon dioxide can build up in these in this cold bottom layer for years and years and years and then what happens like what happened in 1986 something triggers the layers to mix probably in 1986 it was a small landslide and that caused some of the cold water to come up from this lower layer And then with that reduced pressure and increased temperature, it caused bubbles of CO2 to form, just like what happens when you open a can of soda. And then in this case, those bubbles forming and that water moving up draws up more cold water, which is concentrated really heavily in carbon dioxide, which off gases. And again, it comes into a runaway reaction where eventually carbon dioxide shoots out of the lake just like an open can of soda, Hmm. just carbon dioxide comes flying out. They said it was going like a hundred kilometers an hour straight up out of the lake. It must have looked completely insane. Sounds violent. Yes. And they believe that it shot way up into the air, like kilometers and kilometers up into the air. But carbon dioxide is more dense than air. So it settled back down onto the land And the result was a massive cloud of hundreds of thousands of tons of carbon dioxide blanketing a 16 mile radius around the lake. And that carbon dioxide displaced all the nitrogen and oxygen. So everything there died, including 1,700 people and at least 3,500 livestock that suffocated. Yeah, it was super tragic. And as a result, they put in what they call a degassing tube which is literally just a tube that goes down to that deep layer where the carbon dioxide builds up and they start a pump and then eventually it it goes on its own through a siphon action, which allows the layers to mix and keeps the CO2 off-gassing so it doesn't build up in the lower layer. And hopefully there isn't another limnic eruption there. There's another lake in Africa called Lake Kivu, which is between the DRC and Rwanda. And they think that that lake goes through a limnic eruption about every thousand years. Just like kind of on a cycle, something happens. One of the things that can cause it is just the CO2 builds up so much that it can't hold anymore in the water and some bubbles start rising rather than getting absorbed in the water. And that causes it to turn over.
1: Sounds like the lake version of Dante's Peak.
0: It's pretty crazy. So you could imagine in that situation, it kills everything in, around, and above the lake. And lakes are really good places to get fossilized because if you fall to the bottom of the lake, especially if there's nothing in there to scavenge you, you can get buried by silt and runoff from the surrounding area and get fossilized. So it's possible that this has happened and maybe we've found some fossils that are the result of this. Another interesting possibility (laughs) that I think about sometimes because we live in California is something like the Salton Sea. And if you've never heard of the Salton Sea, you should definitely look it up because it's really interesting. It's spelled salt and then ON, Salton Sea. The thing that's going on there which could cause a lot of animals to die is an increase in salinity. So the Salton Sea is in this interesting spot in California which is kind of near the Colorado River. It was formerly part of the Gulf of California down in Mexico that part that separates Baja California from the other states. So periodically Pretty frequently over geologic timescales, it's filled with water on and off. Most recently, though, it was accidentally filled with water during a water project in 1905, and they accidentally made the largest lake in California by area.
1: How do you accidentally do that?
0: <laughs> they were they were trying to redirect the Colorado River, and like something didn't go as planned, and for years, just tons of water flooded into this basin in California and made the largest lake by area. For that we have.
1: years, wow.
0: Yeah, it took them a while to repair it. Apparently it was a, a big mistake. But interestingly, there's this whole thing that happened where they thought this will be this great place like Lake Havasu where people want to visit and everything. So they started developing it.
1: Oh, is this the lake with all the flies?
0: Yes, so what happened was it's in the desert. So a lot of that water evaporates and the salinity increased and increased. And eventually it started killing off a lot of the wildlife. And then, yeah, there's lots of flies. It became a really gross smelling place. So all of the developments got canceled. It's a really interesting ghost town kind of place with all these weird half made developments and things. It looks really post-apocalyptic. But the important thing about it is that increase in salinity that's happening will eventually kill all of the fish in the lake unless something changes. And the main animal life there that you see if you go there is birds or dinosaurs, if you prefer. (laughs) There's over 50 species of birds, including lots of gulls and pelicans that eat the fish. And obviously, if all of the fish die from an increase in salinity, the dinosaurs there are going to die too, because they have nothing left to eat, possibly getting buried in the lake. And then again,
1: excellent fossilization.
0: Yes, especially in this case, because that salinity doesn't hurt either for preserving something in the interim time before it fossilizes. So there's just a couple of examples of how there could be a mass fossilization other than a flood type burial
1: so many ways to die
0: (laughs) (laughs) well fortunately with both of these cases there are ways to avoid it so like we have that way to relieve the co2 in the deeper layers of lake neos and then in the salton sea part of the problem there too is a lot of runoff from agriculture so reducing the runoff from agriculture and then also just adding more fresh water to it so it doesn't just continually get more and more salty would allow the fish to continue living.
1: Yep. And on that positive note, <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, check out our page at patreon.com/slash InoDino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.